Hey, Christian, cheer up. You're on the prayer list of Jesus. How's that for a sermon intro? You made the prayer list of Jesus. The Son of God prays for you. And that ought to be enough truth to hold you over until at least Thursday afternoon of this week. Jesus ascended to heaven and he lives to plead for you before your heavenly Father. His very presence before God the Father is his intercession for you. As the old hymn by John Wesley states, Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. In other words, that old Methodist preacher John Wesley is telling you to cheer up because you're on the prayer list of Jesus. And that ought to be enough truth to get you through whatever it is that's going on in your life right now, or at least get you to Thursday afternoon of this week. So we're continuing our series on the ascension of Jesus, that after his resurrection, after 40 days, he ascended, went back up uh, in a cloud, back up to his Father in heaven. And we'll be in the book of Hebrews today. So turn to Hebrews chapter 7 in your Bibles. We'll get there in just a little bit. But first, while you're turning there, recall what we saw last week. Jesus was taken up to heaven and hidden by a cloud. And it's these two components of his ascension, uh, being taken up and being hidden by a cloud. It's those two components that we actually see are prefigured in the Old Testament. We see snapshots of those two things in the Old Testament. So when you read in Acts chapter 1 that he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight, you're supposed to say, hey, that sounds really familiar. Where have I heard that? And it should be familiar, and it should cause you to call to mind when Moses ascended Mount Sinai after they came out of Egypt, where he ascended Mount Sinai to represent the nation of Israel before the Lord. In Exodus 24, 15, we see these two components. It says, then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. So Moses went up Mount Sinai and was lost in the cloud as the representative of the people of Israel. And as he was on top of Mount Sinai, he received instructions on a building project that Yahweh wanted him to work on. Yahweh, that's God's covenant name, that God wanted him to work on. Moses was instructed to build the tabernacle. But what Moses wasn't free to design it according to his own taste or his own style. He couldn't do like, you know what, it needs some shiplap in here. I've been watching Joanna Gaines. We need some shiplap in the tabernacle. He couldn't do it the way he thought it should look. He was given very specific instructions from the Lord. And you know those instructions. All those very detailed chapters in Exodus, those verses that you love to read that give you the goosebumps, all those verses about the tabernacle and the materials they use, the, the ones that you memorize, the ones that you highlight in your Bible, you know those verses, right? Because you just love all those verses, don't you? Yahweh was very detailed about what the tabernacle should look like. Now, why? 
Why is it so detailed? Why do you have to read all of that in Exodus when you're reading your Bible? You're like, come on, just tell them to build the tabernacle. Because Moses is not building this tabernacle out of thin air. This is not the original tabernacle that Moses is building. The tabernacle that Moses builds is actually modeled after the one in heaven. Moses is building a copy of the original tabernacle in heaven. And so the earthly tabernacle was a copy of the one in heaven. And the earthly tabernacle and what happens there will recreate the mountaintop experience of Moses on Sinai where he he met with Yahweh in the cloud. And the tabernacle will act as a surrogate for the real tabernacle in heaven so that whatever takes place in the earthly tabernacle where sacrifices are made and and blood is shed on the altar and candles are lit and incense and and the, the showbread, all of the things that take place within the tabernacle are a surrogate for what happens in the heavenly tabernacle. And so the high priest serve as mediators between sinners on earth and God in heaven. They enter the cloud, the smoke from the incense inside the tabernacle, and they plead and they pray for the nation of Israel. That's what the priests would do. They would go into the tabernacle, light the incense, the smoke would fill up the room, and if you will, there would be a cloud inside the tabernacle, and then they would pray for the nation of Israel. This is a foreshadowing of what Jesus does in the ascension and his session at his father's right hand. But we also see the ascension prefigured in the burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1, which I know is also a chapter you highlight in your Bibles, isn't it? The burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1 was also called the ascension offering because it would all be burned up and the smoke, the entire sacrifice would be burned up. And the smoke would ascend to heaven. Everything would go up in smoke. The Hebrew word for this offering is olah. It means to go up. And so the burnt offering, or really it's the go up offering, the ascension offering, was the first offering, the first sacrifice that they would offer. And it was the most common one that was offered. It signified that God was pleased with the sacrifice. And he welcomed the sinner into his presence through substitutionary Atonement through death. So we see it with Moses on Sinai. We see it with the ascension offering. We also see a hint of the ascension even with the way that the Old Testament ends. In our English Bibles, the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. But in the Hebrew Bible, it ends with the book of First and Second Chronicles, which I know you also love very much, right? In the Hebrew Bible, and I'm not trying to shame you, by the way, okay? I'm just making fun of the fact that, yes, hey, it's tough when I read some of these passages. And sometimes you need a commentary. You need help. It's much easier to flip open to the book of Psalms, isn't it, than to read Second Chronicles. I mean, we can admit that, right? It's God's word, and we love it, but some passages are harder to understand. I get that. So I'm not trying to shame you. I'm just, well, uh, whatever the phrase is I'm looking for here. Tongue-in-cheek, something in my mouth, I don't know. Whatever. The Hebrew Bible, see what happens when you deviate from your manuscript? You don't make sense. What was I just saying? I have no idea. In the Hebrew Bible, apart from our English, ends with the book of First and Second Chronicles. It's really just one book. We break it up, but it's one book. And so what's the last Hebrew word in the Hebrew Bible? Here it is. Y'all. 
You can't make this stuff up, can you? It's the word y'all. Make of that what you will. It's the same word for the go up or the ascension offering. Here's what that verse says at the end of the Hebrew Bible. 2 Chronicles 36, 23. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may Yahweh his God be with him. Let him go up. And so Cyrus, the king of Persia, whose name really in Hebrew is, is Koresh. Do you know David Koresh and the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas? Do you remember them in 1993? Remember all the stuff that happened? Uh, this is where he got his name. Koresh, Cyrus. He said, I am like this. I am. He got the Hebrew name Cyrus, which is Koresh. So this is where he got. So Koresh, the king of Persia, had freed the Israelites who were enslaved to Babylon, and he's allowing them to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple so that they can worship Yahweh. And Cyrus says that anyone who wants to go up or go back up, ascend the mountain to Jerusalem can. And so the Hebrew Bible actually ends with ascension, to go up to Mount Zion to rebuild the temple to have fellowship with Yahweh. You fast forward to Acts chapter 1, when it says that Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight, and you're supposed to say, hey, this sounds very familiar. That ascension stuff is in the Old Testament too. Okay, now we go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. I hope you've turned there. Beginning in verse 23, hear the word of the Lord. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here's what the preacher of Hebrews is telling us. The priests under the old covenant represented the nation of Israel before God. But their office, their term as priest would end because they would die. They would eventually croak and need to be replaced. But Jesus, he says, on the other hand, Jesus holds his priestly office forever because he came back from the dead. And he serves not at an earthly altar. He serves at the altar in heaven where no Levitical priest in the Old Testament had ever served. The Old Covenant priests served only a copy of the eternal sanctuary. They only served the type, the copy of the heavenly sanctuary. And so the Old Covenant, with all of its types and shadows, was actually weak. It was limited in its scope. And it's the reason why, under the Old Covenant, sinners could not be made perfect. The law could make its demands, and it does. But it could not empower the sinner to obey. The law exposed sinners, but it could not make them right. The sacrifices of the Old Covenant were instituted by God in the law, but they didn't make anyone perfect. And this makes sense if you stop and think about it. How could an animal dying in my place for my sins really make me right with the holy God? That animal is amoral. A-M-O-R-A-L. It, it doesn't have a moral life. It doesn't do right or wrong. It doesn't break any of the Ten Commandments. So how can that animal's blood really wash away my sins? If anyone should pay for their sins... It should be us. 
Those animals were pointing to and anticipating the sacrifice of Jesus, the God-man. Because an animal's blood can't cleanse the conscience. It can't wash you. And that's why the law could not make anyone perfect. It's why the old covenant was weak and was limited in nature. And that's why Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. It's why Jesus is better than Moses. Keep in mind, as R. Scott Clark says, Moses works for Jesus. Don't get that backwards. Moses works for Jesus. Moses and the sacrificial system and all the types and shadows in the Old Testament were always pointing to and anticipating Jesus. They were never the point. Moses works for Jesus, not the other way around. And under Moses, under the law, no one could be made perfect, really perfect, when an animal died in their place. We needed a human being, the God-man, to do that. And that's why a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that better hope is Jesus himself. Because he lived a perfect life for us, obeying the law perfectly on our behalf. And he died a perfect death as a human being in our place on the cross so that we can have the righteousness we need to be able to stand in the presence of a holy God. Just some sheep is not going to give me the righteousness I need to stand in the presence of a holy God. I need the real spotless lamb, Jesus, to do that. So now we can actually draw near to God because of his son. But back to the duties of the Old Testament priests. One of the duties of the priests under the Old Covenant was that they were supposed to pray for the nation of Israel. They were to go into the holy place inside the tabernacle, light some incense, and the smoke, or a cloud, if you will, would fill the room, and then they would get out the weekly prayer list and pray through it. The priests even wore these special little gems or, or stones. You can probably see it in the picture on their chest in these little pockets. And engraved on each of these stones was the name of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the priests were carrying the nation close to their heart, if you will, as they prayed for and interceded for the nation of Israel. So as the priests drew near to Yahweh, they would lift up the nation in prayer. They would pray through the church prayer list. But you had no guarantee under the old covenant if the priest really did pray for you. They could have been thinking about football when they should have been praying. They could have been daydreaming on the job when they should have been lifting the nation up in prayer. I mean, imagine that. Imagine if you will. Let's see if you can dream this up. Imagine daydreaming while you pray. Who does that? Imagine drifting off when you pray. Imagine thinking about a slice of pepperoni pizza while you pray. Thinking about how you need to fix the dishwasher when you pray. Not that any of you ever do that, right? Y'all never think about football when you pray, do you? Or that you need to mow the lawn. Or how you're out of butter. Why do you always remember that? We're out of milk, we're out of butter. When you pray, you're talking to Jesus and you're like, we're out of milk. Or wanting a slice of pizza or anything. Y'all never daydream when you pray, do you? Me either. Liars. We're all a bunch of liars. We all do that. And the old covenant priests, because they're human beings, I'm sure did that too. Would daydream on the job, think about something else. But guess what? Jesus never does. Jesus never falls asleep praying for us. Jesus never dozes off when he prays. Jesus never says, I'll be praying for you, and then doesn't. 
He never says, I'll be praying for you. And then he forgets to pray for you. We've all done that before, right? We tell someone that we'll pray for them and then we forget to pray for them, right? We all do that. And then we see them. Isn't that the worst? I'll be praying for, I'm gonna be praying for you, brother. And you forget to pray and a week later you see them and you're like, oh my gosh, I told him I'd be praying for him. Let me, let me get one in real quick before I talk to him. Jesus, please be with him. I've been praying for you, brother. <laughs> Joe Novison said, I lie the most when I say, I'll pray for you. I lie the most when I say, I'll pray for you. Ouch, because we've all done that. We tell someone we're going to pray for them, and we don't. And that's probably when we lie the most in our lives. But Jesus never does that. He actually lives to pray for you. It's his passion. It's what gets him out of bed in the morning, if you will. And that's why Jesus is better than any priest under the Old Covenant. Because under the Old Covenant, the priests were supposed to intercede for the people before God, but you had no guarantee that it was happening. But what happens when you draw near to God now? What do you find? What do you hear when you draw near to God? You find and you hear Jesus, your high priest, praying for you, pleading for you, interceding for you. Andrew Murray said, Without ceasing, there streams forth from him to the Father the prayer of his love for everyone and every need of those that belong to him. His very person and presence is that prayer. So closely and inseparably is he identified with those he calls his brethren. Jesus is praying for every single one of us. For every single need that every single one of us has. And that's why Jesus is better than the high priest under the old covenant. Because there streams forth from him to his father. Right now, even as I preach, Jesus is praying for you. Isn't that cool? Even as I preach, there streams forth from him the prayer of his love for everyone and every need of those that belong to him. There's a lot of mystery there. We don't understand it, but it's happening. We accept it by faith because God's word says so. As sinners, we need a high priest to represent us before God. We need our guilt removed. So Jesus speaks to God the Father on our behalf, in our defense, and on the basis of his life, death, and resurrection. You do realize what Jesus basically says to God the Father, don't you? He speaks the gospel. He talks about the gospel with God the Father. His wounds point to the gospel. We mentioned this last week. They rehearse the gospel together. The Trinity is rejoicing in the gospel and saying, Christ died for sinners. This is the best news ever. Let's keep talking about it. Okay, Christ died for sinners. It's wonderful. And all of heaven erupts in cheers when they say, Christ died for sinners. There's a party in heaven anytime anybody says, Christ died for sinners. <laughs> Applause. Jesus rehearses the gospel, if you will, with God the Father through his very presence. So his very presence at the right hand of his Father is his intercession for those who are in union with him. And let's be clear about this. When we say that Jesus prays for us and he pleads before his Father. It's not that God the Father has to be reminded about what Jesus has done. It's not that Jesus and God the Father are at odds and Jesus somehow has to convince God the Father to love and forgiveness. That's not what the ascension of Jesus to God's right hand is about. 
It's that this is what Jesus does as our high priest. His wounds effectually intercede for our sins day and night, every day of the year, without end, forever. God is not some reluctant father who needs to be persuaded to love us or who needs to be persuaded to meet our needs. So Jesus isn't greasing the wheels here. God the Father is happy to bless his children. Jesus is not twisting God's arm behind his back until he cries, Uncle. There is simply, in the wisdom of God, and in the redemptive purposes of God, there is simply a high priestly role for Jesus as our mediator. This is how God designed it. There's a lot of mystery, but this is God's plan. Between us and God is Jesus. And that's the greatest news ever. Jesus is the only mediator, 1 Timothy 2, 5. He is our faithful advocate before God, 1 John 2. And he is the very best prayer alive. Jesus is the best prayer. You've heard some people pray, and like, that guy can really pray. That girl's really good. Jesus is the best prayer alive. So we have the all-time best prayer ever praying for us. Think about that. Think about what you're going through in your life right now and the all-time best prayer alive is praying for you. I know your best friend said they'd pray for you. Chances are they might forget. But the all-time best prayer in the universe is praying for you right now as I preach. Jesus, who is fully human like us and who experienced life in a fallen world as a human being, just like us, sin being the only exception, he never sinned, he is the one who is praying for us. He knows what it feels like to suffer like us. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed, to have his heart broken, to have friends leave him and desert him, to have family members shun him. All the things that we experience in a fallen world that that breaks our hearts, Jesus knows he has experienced that. And this is the man who is praying for us, the one who knows what it feels like to suffer, the one who knows what it feels like to be betrayed, have his heart broken, friends and family members shun him. This is the man. We just sang it. We're not the right man on our side. God ordained Jesus, the God-man, to be the one who represents us before him. He is the one who is praying for us. With the 12 stones, if you will, on his chest, he's bringing each of our names before God the Father, close to his heart. The all-time best prayer alive takes our names and our needs before his Father. And the good news of the ascension It's not that Jesus is with the Father praying now. That's good news. But the good news of the ascension is that Jesus will never, ever leave God the Father's side. He will never leave God the Father's side. And that is good news. Listen to what Tim Chester says. It's very profound. And it has big time implications for eschatology for end times issues that relate to the return of Christ, okay? He says this, Jesus ascended into heaven to appear for us in God's presence. Atonement was not complete until Jesus stood before God on our behalf. Jesus, 
our priest and mediator, appears in the presence of God, bearing our names as a memorial to God. He is the sign, the reminder, the pledge, the guarantee that we belong in the presence of God. Our presence before God is as certain as Christ's presence before God. Our salvation is safe and secure as long as Christ is in heaven. This is why the ascension is such good news. This is one reason why we would not want Jesus to leave heaven and appear on earth, however convenient that might appear for world evangelism. If Jesus were to leave heaven, then the pledge of our salvation would be removed. If Christ is not in God's presence on our behalf, then we are not in God's presence. Even on the final day, When Jesus does come to earth, he does not leave heaven behind. He can never leave heaven without jeopardizing our salvation. Instead, he brings heaven with him to create a new heaven and a new earth. He does not leave heaven to collect us and take us back to heaven. He brings heaven to earth. He brings the presence of God to the people of God. The ascension reminds us that Jesus is never going to leave his Father's side, not even when he returns. He will come again at his final advent with heaven in tow. He will bring heaven down. The dwelling place of God will be with man on the new earth. He will never leave his Father's side. He will never leave heaven. He will always be our mediator at God's right hand, always our advocate when he does show up, which could be today. He could come back today. By 10 o'clock would be great. I don't care if you let me finish the sermon or not. 10 o'clock would be great. If that happens, wouldn't that be cool? He could come back today any moment. And when he comes, he's bringing heaven with him. No, Jesus returning, taking people with him, and then he comes back again. He comes and he brings heaven in tow because he's never leaving his father's side because he is our advocate and our mediator, our high priest, our representative for all time. So even though we stumble our way through this life, and even though we are not all-stars disciples, we are secure because Jesus is in heaven. We're not secure because of us. We're secure because he is there. And this is why the ascension is good news. This is why we must preach the ascension to our hearts because we have a man in heaven, a mediator, an advocate, a representative. And when you see Jesus at God's right hand, it should remind you to cheer up because you're on the prayer list of Jesus. What fears it relieves to know that Jesus is our representative before God and to know that he's praying for us. And so the pressure's off, y'all. We're going to make it. Jesus is praying for us. We're going to make it. I don't know if it encourages you when someone tells you that they're praying for you, but it does me. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you think you're going to (laughs) forget. But it encourages me when someone says, Pastor, I'm praying for you. That encourages my heart. Because I know how much I need to be prayed for. I know how much of a sinner I am. I know how desperate I am for Jesus. Think about how encouraging it is to know that a friend is praying for you. And now think about how encouraging it is to know that Jesus is praying for you. Robert Murray McShane said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is 
praying for me. So even when your prayer life stinks, Jesus is praying for you. Understand this. Jesus' prayer life never stinks. Isn't that amazing? There's one human being who's ever lived whose prayer life did not stink. He's faithful. Chances are your prayer life stinks. But Jesus' prayer life never stinks. And he prays for things that we have no idea about. He prays for things that we have no idea are coming. That might happen to us, that could happen to us. Uh, Louis Burkhoff said, It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life. That he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. What sweet comfort that brings. We have a king, highly exalted king, who understands how we feel and what we're going through. Not some detached king who's like, I was just kind of born into royalty and I've never suffered. We have a king, the king of kings, who knows what it feels like to suffer as a human being, standing in heaven, always praying for us. Praying for protection from dangers that we don't see. Praying for spiritual things that aren't even on our radar. And so if we make it out of any trial, it's because Jesus prayed for us. Not because we're resilient. Listen, if you've suffered deeply and gone through some heavy trial and you're standing, that's because Jesus was praying for you. That's not because of your Enneagram number. Well, I'm just a seven and this is what sevens do. No, you made it through that trial, you're standing on your feet, is because Jesus was praying for you. Not because of your personality, your Enneagram number, nothing like that. You're here today because Jesus never stops praying for you. He never abandons you. Ralph Davis says, sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial, but that you are still on your feet in the middle of it. You're still standing on your feet in the middle of a trial? That's evidence that God has not deserted you. We tend to think, if I can make it through the trial and still be standing on my two feet, then that's evidence that God hasn't deserted me because he helped me get through. No, if you're standing on your feet in the middle of it, you're still sane and you haven't lost your mind, it's because God has not deserted you. So if you're past some heavy trial in your life, You're here today because of Jesus, because you have an advocate, one who pleads for you before the Father. John tells us that in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Anybody sin this week? Anybody sin really bad this week? Anybody sin this morning? All hands should go up. Anybody sin really bad this morning? I mean, really bad? All hands should go up because there's no little sin, right? If you're thinking, well, I didn't sin that bad, we need to have a little theology 101 course here, okay? All sin is bad. We all sinned big time this morning against the holy God. We have an advocate. All of us who have sinned on Sunday morning and gone to church have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
Christian, this means that Jesus is not your judge anymore. He's now your advocate. He's your defense lawyer. And your defense lawyer is ever pleading for you before God the Father. And that means when your inner lawyer rises up to condemn you, you have to remember that you have a defense lawyer and his name is Jesus and he lives to make intercession for you. Paul Tripp said, you can fire your inner lawyer because you do not have to defend, excuse, or rationalize what grace has already forgiven. Christian, fire your inner lawyer who rises up to condemn you and to shame you and to guilt you. That inner lawyer that says, shame on you. I can't believe you did that again. How many times are you going to promise Jesus you're never going to do that? Fire your inner lawyer. You don't have to listen to him anymore. Because Jesus is not your judge anymore. Jesus is not your judge anymore. If you are trusting in Christ alone, he's not your judge anymore. He's your defense lawyer now. And your defense lawyer is ever pleading for you before God the Father, even when you don't pray. Even when you've been downright rotten on a Sunday morning and then had the nerve and the gall to go to worship, to go to church and worship Jesus. And that means when your inner lawyer rises up to condemn you because you don't pray as much as you should. Does your inner lawyer ever do that? Do you ever go to church and you see like the sermon title, something about prayer, and you're like, oh my gosh, my prayer life stinks and I got to sit there and listen to a sermon about how I should pray more? Does anyone ever do that in their life? You know what the sermon's going to be about, and you're like, oh, gosh. I wish I would have been evangelizing so I'd feel good when I hear this sermon. But I stink at evangelism, and here he's telling me i got to evangelize more. When your inner lawyer rises up, when you hear a sermon about prayer, and you don't pray that much, and your inner lawyer wants to condemn you because you don't pray that much or because you don't share the gospel that much, you have to remember that you have a defense lawyer and his name is Jesus, and he lives to make intercession for you when you sin. You have an advocate before the Father. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who's going to condemn you, Christian? Who is going to condemn you? Jesus Christ died. God raised him from the dead. He is at the right hand of God interceding for you. Who is going to bring any condemnation into your life this morning? Who can do that? Whose condemnation, whose voice, whose words are going to override the risen Savior's pleading and interceding for you before the Father? No one's going to shut him up. No one's going to tune him out. No no one's going to drown out his words to the Father. You have an advocate who is interceding for you. So don't leave here today feeling condemned. Christian, please understand. You were condemned at the cross 2,000 years ago. If you're trusting in Christ, you're united to him, you are condemned by God with him at the cross. God judged your sin 2,000 years ago. You're not going to stand before him one day, Christian, and have him judge you for your sins. You were judged at the cross. That was your judgment day. Your judgment day happened 2,000 years ago at Calvary. So don't leave here today feeling condemned and guilty and beat up. Leave here today feeling loved and say, oh my goodness, is it true? I was judged then. And I've been declared righteous because of what happened on a cross 2,000 years ago. And now I'm loved. 
And I have a father in heaven and I have an older brother, Jesus, who's pleading for me. Oh my goodness, I should feel good today. I should cheer up. Leave here feeling loved today and receive his grace. It's free. If you haven't trusted in Christ, come, come home, come to him. Come now. Turn away from living for you and just come and receive the free gift that he offers, forgiveness of sins. Will you believe? Will you come? It's the gospel. The gospel is for people who don't pray as much as they should. It's for people who are sometimes just downright rotten, even downright rotten on a Sunday morning. It's for people who fall asleep when they pray. It's for you, for you personally. Hear the words of John Wesley's hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise, and Picture your high priest in heaven right now. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. The Father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his Son. His Spirit answers to the blood. His Spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence... I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. So Christian, cheer up. You're on the prayer list of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, it is a mystery. What's transpiring even now as we pray, that you are praying, pleading for us. What joy what pride your father must feel welling up in his heart, if you will, when he sees your scars, when he sees your blood, knowing that you accomplished your eternal plan to save sinners from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. What joy the Trinity feels, experiences, as they relish and rehearse the good news. And it's all because of what you have done. And so, Jesus, we ask you to forgive us because our sins are many. There's so many. But your mercy is so much more. Our, our sins are no match for your grace. And we thank you for that. Forgive us. Help us to love others. Help us to share this hope that we have with others. Help us to cheer up, Lord because we're on your prayer list. In your name we pray, amen.